Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I think I like being at the second service more because I, I don't have to worry about cutting off before the next crowd arrives. So you're welcome for not keeping you outdoors so I finished the last service. Um, yeah, more claps. I'll take them all. No, no, no. Stop it. Stop it. That's enough. Uh, <laughs> um, today, I want to talk to you guys about overcoming strongholds of the mind. So um, my, my, I travel a lot. I've got a ministry called Thomas Ministries. It's sort of my um, nonprofit that, that allows me to travel and speak in different churches and, and different countries and do missions and that kind of thing. So, which, by the way, you're all welcome to donate at any point in time uh, to that ministry. But um, my main ambition and what I seek to do is equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And that involves a lot of different things. So uh, how many of you are familiar with the Ephesians 4 passage and the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors? Um, it says that those gifts were given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So who gets to do the work? The guy with the microphone or everyone else? It says for the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? Any saints in the room? And some of you don't know who you are. We'll have to talk about that. Um, that's right. See, the, the, the person with the microphone, it's not like they got the special, you know, varsity Holy Spirit and the rest of you got the JV. It didn't work that way. All right? The professional ministers, I get it. They, they, they get paid to be good, right? Everybody else is good for nothing. That, it takes a sec, that one. Yeah, I know that's a pretty cheap one, right? Uh, <laughs> pun intended. Um, where was I going with this? I've like totally lost my, my train of thought. Equipping the saints. So when I travel, I mostly like to teach about the gifts of the Spirit. How many of you were here on Wednesday night? You got to see some of the gifts in action. We were, we were demonstrating the prophetic, but you notice that when we demonstrated the prophetic, I wasn't just demonstrating, I was also equipping and training everybody how to hear the voice of God. And so that, that really is what I'd love to do, but I always feel like I'm selling people a little bit short because sometimes you think if you can just operate in all the gifts, then, then you're going to be completely healed and made whole and, and everything being brand new. But that's actually not the case. There are a lot of tools that God has given us to overcome the problems in life. Some of them are the gifts of the Spirit, which I absolutely love, which, by the way, I, I need to make mention of this. I did a, a six-part series on hearing God and prophecy. Um, so these little USB drives are out there, and we sell them for $70. Normally, I sell them for $85. For you guys, I'm selling them for $70. But it's a six-part series, so each episode is 30 minutes, and it's all about hearing God and prophecy. So I love that stuff. I especially love pushing the envelope when it comes to the supernatural. Like, I want to see every kind of healing that Jesus saw. I want to equip others to see every kind of healing that Jesus saw. I want to teach people how to deliver people from evil spirits. Yes, those things are real, despite what we may believe. Uh, evil spirits are real. Um, I want to teach people how to deal with those things. I want to teach them how to, how to hear the voice of God, especially for one another, which is called prophecy. Um, but I also want to give people the tools to overcome every other obstacle that's out there. So um, today we're going to deal with specifically overcoming strongholds. Now when it comes to deliverance, I always tell people there's two primary ways of dealing with a demon. And this will make sense to you. There's a, a thing we call power. And when power comes, you command the thing to leave, and it goes, right? Get out in the name of Jesus. Gone. There's another time when there's not power present. There's another method I like to call starvation. It's where you starve it from any rights it has to be there, to where there's nothing left for it to hold on to. 
And it's that second method that I want to talk about primarily, and that's what I call overcoming the strongholds. Um, now, let me just give you a, a little bit of my background here. Um, I was in the, it's funny because I'm actually like fumbling more through this, this message. The last message, my mom was here, which was a little nerve wracking because I was talking about a lot of my personal issues that I had just sort of over and over again in life. Um, but what are the, how many of you like the promises of God? Yeah? Like the promises of God. You know one of the promises people always fail to mention that you don't find in that little promise book of God? In this life, you will have trouble. Yeah, that's one of the promises of God, right? In this life, guaranteed, you will have troubles. And the one thing that pastors never mention is the kind of troubles you have that you are the ones creating. Because pastors don't create troubles, right? We don't have problems. Not any of our own creating anyways, right? It's the sheep who bite us. We don't bite back. They never talk about that. Well, I'm going to be really vulnerable, and I'm going to talk about the problem or the trial that I had that I was the creator of. Now, I, didn't, I wasn't the, the, the uh, original Genesis didn't start with me, but I perpetuated these problems in my life. You see, when I was about a year old, parents got divorced. Dad was unfaithful, cheated on my mom, did a lot of other bad stuff. Probably the best thing that happened was that they separated for my family. But at age four, my dad married another woman who had six children. Never mind the fact that he didn't pay child support to my mom to take care of the four children he already had. Pretty harsh, right? So at that point in my life, you might as well branded my forehead with the word rejection or, or abandoned. Right there. Because every relationship that I would enter into in my adult life and much of my childhood, I would completely sabotage it. Because of the fear of abandonment and rejection I had that started with the abandonment of my father. Um, now, I, I get my father probably never intended to send me the message abandoned or rejected. But all the same, nevertheless, it happened anyways. Well, I felt like I was actually not worth loving. Now, I could have never told you this growing up. Uh, I couldn't have told you it for much of my adult life that I didn't feel like I was worth loving, but I actually really did believe it, and you could see it by how I behaved. Every relationship I would enter into, I would date a girl for like three months. If the girl loved me, I'd break up with her because obviously something's wrong with her if she's in love with me. Can you see how twisted that is? But it's true. That's the way I dealt with relationships. Now, if... Uh, typically, so if the girl liked me, I'd get out of that relationship because obviously there's something wrong with her for liking me. Uh, what felt normal to me was the girl that was always walking away. And I would date that girl for three months until I sabotaged the relationship and started to manipulate because I was so doing everything I could to get her to stay. And see, that makes the most sense to me because if I can get the person who's walking away, like my father, then that means I'm actually worth something, Right? Do you see how that's a recipe to be single the rest of your life? Constantly sabotaging the relationship of the girl walking away or breaking up with the girl that's staying there. It doesn't make any sense if you're always chasing the one walking away, right? What are they doing? They're walking away. When they're walking away, it's not worth your time because you're worth loving, not being walked away from. But see, I didn't believe that. At the core of who I was, I didn't believe I was worth loving. Um... Scripture puts it this way. Paul talks about this in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Let's go there. Chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. There we go. You're switching it up on me. It's like, what, what happens to all the people who can't see out of that eye? Does that, does that work? <laughs> I'm not an ambi-turner. I can only turn right every time. Uh, <laughs> okay, I had a point to this message. We'll get there eventually. Second uh, <laughs> Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Next verse. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What does that mean? Okay, though we, we walk in this body, we don't conduct warfare the way normal people do, right? We're not pulling out knives and swords and cutting each other down. That's not our weapons of warfare. Our weapons are actually divinely powerful. Now get this, what would you rather have, a sword or a weapon that's divinely powerful? Yeah, we have the sword of the Spirit, far more powerful than any physical sword. Divinely powerful for what? The destruction of fortresses. Well, what's a fortress? Look at the next verse. We are destroying every speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So what are fortresses? They're lofty imaginations, lofty thoughts, knowledge that's raised up against, in opposition to, the knowledge of God's goodness and His existence. So the, the, the statement or the thought, God's not real, God's not good, that's knowledge, that's a, an idea, a lofty thought raised up against the truth, which is God is both real and good. We have actually been given weapons, tools of warfare to destroy fortresses. I love the way the NASB puts it. Another, another way is strongholds of the mind. Now, in my life, I would say there are all kinds of fortresses. Most of them are raised up against the knowledge of God. Those are two things that can't coexist. Either God is good or he isn't. And we know he's good, right? We know that up here, many of us don't necessarily believe it down here. One of the biggest problems in my life when it came to overcoming the rejection issues and abandonment issues is I had a whole lot of scripture memorized up here, but very seldom felt the truth of it down here. You read that in John, he says, um, the truth will set you free. Ever go through a rough time and someone tells you that the truth will set you free? I think you want to slap those people. Yeah. The truth will set you free. It's like, don't tell me that. Well, I mean, it's true, right? We always leave out the first half of that verse where it says, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, to know the truth is actually a Semitic term. It's the same verse or same word used when it describes uh, Adam's love for Eve. It says, then he knew Eve. How did he know her? Well, that's an experiential thing. Then you will know the truth. That's an experience with truth, and that kind of truth will set you free. See, we all actually need, we're all one experience away from truth. From getting further, that doesn't make sense. Uh, all we need is an experience with truth to get free. Now, I believed at the core of who I was that I was not worth loving because my dad abandoned my, my, my mom and my family. And from that day forward, I would self-perpetuate that belief in my life by sabotaging every relationship I got into. 
proving to myself over and over again that I was never really worth loving. You see, that's knowledge raised against the knowledge of God. How do you know this? Well, how, is it true that I'm not worth loving? See, we know that's not true. How do we know it? Well, you know something's worth by what someone will pay for it. For God so loved the world that he gave what? What did he pay for the world? We're talking about a being that is infinite, infinite worth, the infinite blood of Jesus Christ shed on your behalf. That's how much you are worth. Because God would shed his son's blood on your behalf to pay for you. You are worth the blood of Christ. Everybody uh, think about this. Just, just say this and tell me if it feels a little sacrilegious. All right, I want you to repeat after me. I am worth the blood of Jesus. Go. I am worth the blood of Jesus. Does it feel a little weird to say that? Does that almost feel a little sacrilegious? Like, how could you say that? It's the blood of Jesus. But that's the truth. We know something's worth by what someone will pay for it, and that's what God paid for you and I, which tells you that if you believe you're actually not worth loving, that is something that's been raised up against the truth of what God says. Now, he just didn't just say it. He actually sacrificed his son to prove it. Um, I can break down every stronghold into the three basic categories. Categories. Now, this is a, an oversimplification, but hear me out on this. Three basic categories. Things we believe, uh, lies we believe about God, lies we believe about ourselves, or lies we believe about the world around us. Each one of those things are fortresses of the mind raised up against the knowledge of God, things that are meant to be torn down. Do you think it actually matters what you believe about God? Do you think it affects your life? Let me just prove it to you. This is a, come from a, comes from a book called The God-Shaped Brain. Really cool read, easy read, not too, not too uh, heady or technical. It says, in 2006 at Baylor University, they took a national survey to evaluate how people viewed God. They found that only 23% of people viewed him as benevolent or loving. Only 23% of people. While 32% saw the Almighty as authoritarian, 16% as critical, 24% as distant, 5% didn't believe in him at all. Does it matter which God concept we hold to? I'm going to prove to you that it does in some very interesting ways. It has some like really kind of cool ramifications. Recent brain research by Dr. Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania has documented that all forms of contemplative meditation were associated with positive brain changes. But the greatest improvements occurred with participants who meditated specifically on a God of love. What do we know about the God we worship? We're told that God is love, that we wouldn't even know what love is without knowing God. Such meditation was associated with growth in the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain, get this, that behind our forehead where we reason and we make judgments and experience God-like love. How many of you would like growth in that part of your brain where you reason and make judgments? Reason and make judgments, that's better. It says, not only that, subsequent, sorry, as well as growth as increased capacity for empathy, 
sympathy, compassion, and altruism. That means like giving unconditionally, good actions, altruism. Growth and all of those things take place when we meditate on a God of love. Here's the most astonishing part. Not only does other-centered love increase when we worship a God of love, but sharp thinking and memory improve as well. In other words, worshiping a God of love actually stimulates the brain to heal and grow, which is Scripture. Let's check this out. This is um, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory, just as the Lord the Spirit. So, meditating on God produces God-likeness in us. There's another passage that says, we don't know, this is talking about the, the day when Jesus returns. We don't know yet what we will be. We know that when we see him, we will become like him, for we'll see him just as he is. So, seeing him actually makes us like him. But it gets even better than that. And everybody who fixes their gaze on upon him, this is now, purifies himself just as he is pure. Brain research has proven what the scriptures have already taught, that by meditating on a God of love, you become more loving and like God. Here's more. However, when we worship a God other than one of love, that has ramifications too. Only 23% of people believe God is loving and benevolent. 23%. So that means there's a lot of believers who believe a lot of very bad things about God. When we worship a God other than one of love, one who is punitive, authoritarian, critical, or distant, fear circuits are activated, and if not calmed, result in chronic inflammation and damage to both brain and body. As we bow before authoritarian gods, our characters are slowly changed to be less like Jesus. Truly, by beholding, we are changed, not only in character, but in our neural circuitry as well. Isn't that fascinating? Um, in the early church, they had this practice called cataphatic prayer. That's a weird prayer word. Richard Foster, one of the guys who wrote the book, uh, not one of the guys, the guy who wrote the book, Celebration of Discipline, he called it contemplative prayer. Another word would be imaginative prayer or meditation. Here's, here's what some of them said about prayer, where you're meditating on God, and that when you read the Scriptures, you're not just reading them and, and getting them imported to your brain, but you're actually meditating on what you see. You're imagining that you're there when it happens. Check this out. This is uh, Origen. He, he, oh, not Origen. Sorry. This is uh, Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, actually, I, I think this is Gregory and Nisa. I could be wrong on who I'm quoting, but just hear the quote anyways. Let us therefore always fix our gaze on this image of God so that we may be able to be reformed in its likeness. For if the human who has been made in the image of God by contemplating against his nature the image of the devil becomes like him through sin, how much more will he, by contemplating on the divine image in whose likeness God has made him, receive through the word and his power, that form which has been given to him by nature. That's a, that's a complicated phrase. He's basically saying that if you can become more like the devil by meditating on sin, 
then how much more can you become more like God by meditating on Him? Um, this is another, this, this one I like even more. This is from Ignatius of Loyola. He was, I think, uh, medieval. He says this about the, med- the nativity scene, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. He says, here it, here it will be seeing with the eye of the imagination the road from Nazareth to Bethlehem, considering how long it is, how wide, and whether it is level or goes through the valleys and over hills. In the same way, it will be seeing in the place of the cave of the nativity, considering whether it is large or small or deep or high. In other words, when he prayed or when he read the scriptures, he didn't just read them. He imagined being there. Struggling when believing that God loves you? Do this. Go to the passage of Scripture where Jesus has put the crown, the crown of thorns on his head. Imagine walking with him as he's carrying the cross up the hill to Golgotha. Imagine the blood being shed from him as he's being laid upon that cross and the heavy breathing and think to yourself, He's doing this because he loved me. This is the the power of the imagination. It actually has the ability to change your neural circuitry. What you meditate on actually changes the way you feel. Now, I believed at the core of who I was that I was not worth loving. Let me give you some practical tools on how to use your imagination to get free by sharing with you the story, my story, of how I used my imagination to get free. Now, this is just some basic, they call this, um, I don't know, uh, cognitive therapy. Now, we have a leg up over the cognitive therapists in the world in that we have a foundation of truth called the Scriptures. This is why, I mean, and the Scriptures are so vitally important for our well-being. That's why God, when, he, when Joshua was being brought into the promised land, when he, was, when he was being appointed to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, he said this, Joshua, do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. This is in Joshua 1.8, if you want the reference. Meditate on it day and night. See, meditation is the lost form of prayer for us. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do what is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. There's a lot of other passages that speak about the exact same thing. Check this out. How, Psalm 119, uh, I think it's verse 8 or 9. How may a young man keep his way pure? Men struggling with lust, get this. How can you keep your way pure? Hiding his word in your heart. This is why the psalmist would pray in Psalm 119, 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Because by focusing on the God who wrote those words... You actually become like him. Um, so here's how this plays out. Now, in order to, to make sense of this, I'm going to have to do something that most of you men in the room are not going to like. You ready for this, guys? We have to become comfortable with talking about our emotions. I know what you're thinking, men. You're going, I don't have those. Yes, yes, you actually do. You have more than just uh, anger or, or humor, I mean, laughter, happiness, right? You have, you're, you're more complex than just those two basic emotions. But for the sake of keeping it simple for you, I'll, bake, I'll bury it down to four basic emotions you need to become familiar with, okay? Um, first one is anger. Now, anger, just 
to, to make sense of things, is nothing, nothing wrong with anger in and of itself. Paul will say this in Ephesians, be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. So anger in and of itself is not a sin. It's what you do with anger that can be sin, right? Be angry, but do not sin. And then not only that, don't let your anger stay there. Deal with it. Because here's what happens when you don't deal with it. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. Well, what's a foothold? Think about this. World War II, the, uh, the American troops are trying to get a foothold in Western Europe on D-Day. They attacked and stormed the beaches of Normandy, Western France. What, what were they attempting to do? They were trying to get a foothold in Western Europe. That's a place from which they could conduct further warfare in Europe to push back Nazi Germany. Do you really want to give a place in your life to an enemy, a place from which he can conduct wor further warfare in your life? That's what happens when we don't deal with our anger. We have to deal with it. Ignoring it and pretending like it's not there isn't helping us, is it? Now, here's the thing about anger. Anger is usually a cover-up emotion, and this is how you deal with your anger. Okay, you can go running and expel it, do positive things like that, but really you need to peek behind the curtain because anger is usually the force that's protecting you from feeling something else. Those other feelings are called guilt, shame. Yeah, I know all the women are like nudging their husbands like, you need to hear this, right? It's like every time we give the altar call for, for God wants to heal male, uh, baldness, all the women are like, you get up there. Get those beautiful locks back. Um, anger, guilt, shame, and fear. Another word for fear is anxiety. Now, the difference between guilt and shame, many of us may think they're the same thing. They're not. Guilt is sadness over something we've done, right? Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. It, it causes us to change from a certain way of behaving. So sadness over something we've done. Shame is sadness over who we are. See, one refers to our behaviors the other refers to our identity, who we are at the core of our being. You see, shame was never supposed to be part of the human equation, right? They experienced shame after the fall. Sadness over what they did, but then shame because they realized they were naked. See, shame isn't supposed to be there. None of us are supposed to feel sad about who we are. But I'll tell you this. From very young age, I hated who I was. I believed at the very core of my being that anybody who really got to know me would reject me because I was not worth loving. You see, that's shame. And shame can lead to all kinds of things like self-hatred and, and self-abuse. People will get into abusive relationships because they believe they deserve it because of who they are. And all of those things, that's, those are called fortresses of the mind, knowledge raised up against the knowledge of God. Um, in order to deal with the strongholds of our mind, we have to become aware of our emotions. I'm sorry, man, that's the bad news of this sermon. The good news is you can, and the, the better news is you can also use those things in your favor to overcome the trials of life. That's the good news. Um, here's the thing. Here's the process we all go through. You may not realize this, but everything actually starts in the mind with a thought. Out of that thought, we experience emotions or feelings. 
Now, there may be a difference between the two, emotions and feelings. I'm not aware of it. I, I always kind of thought they were synonyms. Maybe the women can help with that one. They probably know better than I do. Um, anyway, you, everything starts with a thought. Those thoughts produce feelings or emotions in us. Out of those feelings, we behave. So, um, this, is, this is a typical negative experience that I would have because of my rejection issues. I would uh, uh, text my girlfriend, and she didn't text me back. And so I would suddenly start feeling this panic and anxiety and fear. And out of that fear, I would begin to text her all these manipulative things, like, why are you texting me back? I've been waiting forever, even though it's only been two minutes. Um, oh, come on. I'm not the only one. Yeah, yeah thank you. I got that. one person in the back like, oh, I know this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> a couple of people willing to walk in the light. Um, now, the reason why the, coming in, in touch with your emotions is so important. Now, now I was so emotionally ignorant or emotionally um, um, stunted. I didn't know I had these emotions. Somebody actually had to give me a list and go, okay, Michael, when, you, when this was going on, what were you feeling? And I'm like, oh, fine. Okay, uh, fine is not actually an emotion. Like, I remember I actually, I was doing this teaching with a group of guys, and I, I went around the room and I said, okay, how are you guys feeling? And everybody's like, good, cool, okay. I'm like, not one of those words is actually an emotion. <laughs> I, I, I printed, I knew that this would happen, so I printed off this, this rainbow-colored chart of emotions just because I wanted to get them to laugh. You know, humor lightens the tension, right? So anyway, I was like, point to this one if you're feeling this. This you experience here. And so like guilt, we, we experience sadness over something we've done or just sadness in general right here in the gut, right? Gut-wrenching sadness, right? You have a loss, somebody you love, you feel it right here in your gut. Uh, when we feel afraid, where do we feel that? Our chest, the tightening, right? In our chest, you get panic attacks there. Uh, shame, we often feel in a combination of both. Oftentimes, it's in the gut, though. Uh, anger, you'll feel that in your face. You'll feel it in the back of your neck. Your face will get red hot when you're feeling anger. When it switches into rage, even more so, you start sweating. Um, you can also feel, uh, you start to sweat when you feel afraid or shamed. Sorry, uh, uh, anxiety, not, not ashamed. Uh, see, uh, look, how, look how much I've grown, ladies. It's possible for your husbands too. Uh, some of you men are like, how can I get out of here? This guy, I hate him. Um, <laughs> right now, you're experiencing anger and, and fear. <laughs> uh, I, I hate to say it, though. I mean, man, we were set up to fail in this. See, the thing is, not only do we pretend like we not have them, because we were, sh we were also shamed as children for experiencing anything other than anger or happiness. So we have shame about feeling other emotions. So that shame causes us to pretend like we don't even have them. But it's not true. Now, why am I taking so much time to explain this? Because here's the thing. It says that we take every thought captive. How can you take a thought captive when you don't know it even exists? You see, most of the lies we believe about God, most of the lies we believe about others and the world around us, or most of the lies we believe about ourselves, we're not even aware we believe them. They're subconscious. See, we're not, I mean, and think of it this way. How many of you can remember every negative thought that you had yesterday? Nobody raises their hand on that one. One guy, okay, maybe, 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 maybe. All right. How many of you can remember the negative feelings that you felt yesterday? 
A lot more hands go up on that. Why? Because unlike thoughts, feelings, emotions, you cannot run from. They scream to us that something is wrong. They're motivators. And when you feel something incredibly negative, it motivates you to do something about it. God gave us our emotions to help us, to, to scream to us, hey, something's off here and it needs to be dealt with. So here's the process that I went to when it came to dealing with my, my rejection and abandonment issues. Every night I would get out a journal and I would begin to ask myself these questions. I'd start with the feelings because, again, you can seldom remember your negative thoughts. This is the question I asked myself. What, was I, what negative things did I feel today? Did I feel ashamed? Did I feel afraid? Did I feel guilt or sadness? Did I feel anger? If I was feeling anger, what was I protecting myself? What's, what's the other emotion I was trying to run from? Okay, once you identify that you're feeling something, in this case, uh, for me, it was always fear of abandonment, right? The girl didn't text me back. So I felt afraid. Then I would ask myself this next question. What was I thinking about? when I was feeling that feeling. Well, I was thinking about the fact that she didn't text me back, even though it had been two minutes. Now, that thought is supposed to help you. Realizing what you were thinking about, the next question you ask is, what does that say about me? What does that say about God? What does that say about the world around me? You see, when she didn't text me back right, in that, right then, when I was meditating on that negative thought, I was feeling something destructive, and that feeling produced self-sabotage in all my relationships. You see, the thought was, if she didn't text me back, she doesn't love me anymore, which really means I'm not worth loving. You see how that thing keeps creeping up? You see how it gets triggered by, by silly things? And the truth is, did she really send me that message? Did she text me and say, hey, you're not worth loving? Did she ever actually send that message? But the thing is, we can experience crazy heightened amounts of emotion based off of things that don't even exist. Isn't that, isn't that just wild? Now, now, I'm telling you again, that's good news. Because when we meditate on the God of love, we can also experience feelings that are incredibly positive and good. Joy being content in all circumstances. So the thought was that th therein lies the lie, right? I'm not worth loving. Now, I highly recommend that when you're trying to discover what it is that you really believe about yourself, that you have people on speed dial. When you're trying to figure out the fortress, it's called a fortress, right? A stronghold of the mind. It's set up to be invisible and protect you. Isn't it? That's what a fortress does. It protects you. And so for most of us, it's trying to stay invisible. So when you get other people in your life, and this is what I did. I had three guys that were on uh, uh, speed dial for me. Every night, when I, if, I, if I could not figure out why I, was, why I felt what I was feeling, I'd ask them a question. Hey, I know I was feeling this today. They go, okay, what were you thinking about? Well, I was thinking about the fact she didn't text me. Okay, what does that say about you that she didn't text you? I don't know. What does it say about me? Well, Michael, is it possible that maybe you feel like she's sending you the message she doesn't love you, and that bothers you because at the core of who you are, you believe you're not worth loving? You see, that thing, that subconscious, is suddenly becoming conscious. You're now becoming aware of it. 
Remember I said, you can't take something captive you're not aware exists. See, once you're aware of it, you can start dealing with it. The problem is, and this is why I say do it at the end of the, end of the day and not when you're experiencing the emotions you're experiencing, because most emotions that are negative, they come on you like a tsunami and just pummel you in the ground. How many of you can think clearly when you have heightened emotions? Anybody? This is why you don't make good decisions when you're highly emotional. You got to wait till those emotions die down. So anytime I was feeling that heightened emotion during the day, I would, do, I would just do this thing. I, I, I pictured it like it was a, a tsunami, right? Now, every wave eventually calms down, doesn't it? Eventually, your emotions go away. They dissipate. So I just did this thing I call ride the wave. Just let it happen. Don't try to run from it. Don't try to get it to stop. Just let it happen and move on. And then deal with it later. And that's what I did. Is that night I would discover what was really going on behind these feelings. See, the feelings, don't, they're neither good nor bad. They just are. And the thoughts we have are neither good nor bad. They just are. But when we don't deal with them or take them captive, they can lead us to behave in all kinds of erratic ways, destructive ways. So, um, <clears throat> start taking captive. Here's, here's an interesting thing. How many of you would agree that if you're going to fight in a war, it'd probably be a good strategy to train for that battle before you get into the battle? Anybody agree with me on this one? Right? Do the, do, do the American troops, do they just go to war without any training? No, they spend months and months, sometimes years, in training for battle before they get to the battle. But I would submit to you that most Christians... They train for battle by fighting in a battle, which is a guaranteed way to lose that battle. Do you know how I know this? Think about it this way. We try to fight off the lies we believe with truth when we're experiencing it. That seldom works. How do you fight? What, what were the weapons of our warfare? It's not an earthly sword. It's a sword of the Spirit, right? Which is called the Word of God. See, this is, the, this is a twofold coin. The first thing is taking the thought captive. The second part is replacing it with the truth you need to fight off that lie. Uh, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, right? That is actually divinely empowered to destroy that fortress. Well, what's the truth I needed to get over my fortress to destroy it? Truth is, I'm worth the blood of Jesus. The truth is, he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. The truth is, it doesn't matter if this girl loves me or doesn't, because I am worth loving. I don't have to be tossed to and fro by what she thinks of me, because God in heaven thinks great things about me. Let me give you another example. I want you to repeat after me. Here's what I want you to repeat. And on three, we'll do this. I want you to repeat the words, I'm awesome. One, two, three. I'm awesome. To the degree that that felt true is the degree to which you actually believe it. Do I need to say that again? In other words, if saying that felt weird to you and unfamiliar and didn't produce a nice feeling is the degree to which you don't actually believe it. You see, if you really believed you were awesome, that would produce a feeling in you called joy, contentment. You'd be happy suddenly. 
out of nowhere. That's the nature. Ever met people that just seem so joyous all the time? Those people really do love themselves. They think they're worth loving. They think they're awesome. And they are. Um, I remember one time, I was, uh, this was in one of more my, my more free moments. Uh, I was trying to date this girl or take this girl on a date, and she kept turning me down. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it, and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with this girl. She needs to let me take her out. Like, I'm a, I'm a great guy. And she looked at me, she goes, well, that's arrogant. And I'm like, why is that arrogant? She goes, people don't say stuff like that about themselves. I go, hold up on a, just one second here, Ms. Libby. Uh, does God think I'm a great guy? She's like, well, yeah, I guess so. I go, well, then who am I to think anything less of me than he thinks of me? Unless I think I'm better than God. Who's right, God or me? You see, it's not, and this is the crazy thing. People will call that prideful or arrogant, believing something good about yourself, or even saying something good about yourself. That's not prideful and arrogant. Pride is believing that you're better than someone else because of it. That's pride. You're not better than somebody else just because you happen to like yourself. Okay? Pride is thinking you're better than somebody else. Um, if anything, believing something true about yourself is, is humility. Think of it this way. Uh, uh, we're told that Moses was the most faithful man or humble man in all the earth. Do you know that? I always think this is ironic, right? Do you know who wrote those words? Was he wrong? He truly was the most humble man in all the earth, which means true humility is rightly acknowledging what God says about you, not pretending like you're something less than. Thinking you're less than something God says is actually false humility, and I mean, if anything, could be even more prideful because you think you know better than God. I, this got really confusing fast, didn't it? Some of you are like, where did he go with all of this? Okay. Yeah, we need a flow chart. <laughs> all, right, all right, back to this, because this is super important. You start by taking the thought captive and replacing it with truth. Every night I would go through this process. What are the negative feelings I felt? What was I thinking about when I was thinking those, or feeling those feelings? What does that say about me? What does that say about God? What does that say about the world around me? There's the lie I need to start taking captive. Okay, what's the truth I need? Every morning I'd wake up, and that would be my meditation the next morning. You see, here's the thing. The lies we believe feel true until they don't. I know, it just seems like it should work better than that. They feel true until they don't. And the truth about us doesn't feel true until it does. And this is the way our brains are wired. Think about it. Your brain circuitry works a lot like a muscle. What happens if I work out this muscle every day? and fail to work out this one over here. Well, this becomes very strong, right? And then it looked very weird. And then let's say I stop working this muscle out. What's going to happen to it? It's going to atrophy. Same thing is true of your emotions, the way you think, your thought patterns. If you've been thinking that you're not worth loving your whole life, you actually have to take that thought captive. Stop working it out. Stop meditating on it so that it can atrophy. See, it produces a great deal of emotion in you because of how strong that belief is. But when it starts to atrophy, instead of feeling like a tsunami, it feels like a wave. And then instead of feeling like a wave, it just feels like a puddle. 
And then instead of feeling like that, it's like a little gnat that you just like, get out of here. He's called Beelzebul, the Lord of the... Get out! My, my, my son so cute. Whenever there's a flyer, he says, get out of here, bug. I love that. That's the way the lies should feel. Not like a fortress, but like a little fly. So when you let that one atrophy, you have to use the other side of the coin, which is replacing it with the truth that you need. And the truth won't feel true until it does. Every morning I wake up saying these words, God, thank you that you love me just the way I am. Thank you that I'm worthy of love. Thank you that you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. Thank you that you'll be with me to the end of the age. And I would do it as a way of praise and thanksgiving because we can, we can conduct warfare with our worship, can't we? And I would meditate on the truth I needed till it actually felt true. I wouldn't leave that place of thanksgiving till there was actually a physiological response. Now look, your thinking is incredible, incredibly powerful. Your imagination is incredibly powerful. It actually produces a physiological response in your body. Let me prove it to you. Everybody close your eyes. Okay? I want you to begin to think about your favorite dessert. Imagine that dessert sitting on a plate in front of you. You've got a fork or a spoon in your hand, and you're slicing into that, and you're about to put it to your mouth. And think, imagine what it tastes like when you get that first bite in your mouth. Any of you there? How many of you are beginning to salivate? How many of you start having hunger pains? Like you were hungry before, but now you're feeling really hungry. How many of you like, can he hurry up and finish? I've got food to go eat. You see, your imagination actually produced a physiological response. It produced an emotion or a feeling. Isn't that kind of crazy? In this case, it was hunger, which I guess is not quite an emotion. Hey, I think I found the difference between feelings and emotions. <laughs> ding, ding. Um, I feel like I'm kidding. Where was I going with all this? Um, I'm here to tell you that I don't struggle with fear of rejection and abandonment, anything like I used to. I'm not saying I never struggle with it. I'm saying it's nowhere near, it doesn't cause near the problems in my life that it used to. Today, I'm a happily married man. I do not worry that my wife is going to leave me or abandon me. We have two children. We've been married for five and a half years, about to celebrate our sixth anniversary. Which means, all you single people in the room, how many of you know it's better to deal with this before you're married rather than when you get married? I know. I'm telling you this because you're actually capable of overcoming whatever that repeated trial in your life is, uh, even the one that you're causing. Okay, the letters written to seven churches in Revelation, I actually preached about this the very last time I was here. There's one repeated phrase in the revelation of Christ written to the seven churches, and it's this phrase, to him who overcomes, I will give. Notice there's no promise of delivering them from the problems they were experiencing. Some of them were being asked to be faithful unto death, but to him who overcomes, I will give. No deliverance, no zap it away like a miracle. Promises of reward for having overcome great trials. Why, do you think that a teacher would give somebody a test with the hopes that they fail it? Is that why we give tests today? 
Do you think God is letting the same trial happen in your life over and over and over again because he's expecting you to fail? Better yet, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give. Which means if you're continuing to experience this trial over and over again and God didn't zap it away, it means on some level, he actually believes you're capable of overcoming. Which means you're capable of overcoming. So this repeated problem in your life doesn't have to be that way the rest of your life. You are actually capable of overcoming. Right now, that may not feel true to several of you until it does feel true. Who's right? You or God? You're capable of overcoming whatever it is. I, li- I stand here as a living testimony witness to that very fact. Pretty awesome, isn't it? Well, I went through this process. Um, I had a, a buddy of mine who was, you know, incredibly wealthy guy, but he and his wife were having marital issues. And after talking with he and his wife, um, I sort of figured out in the, in the midst of this that the real problem was actually his fear of financial loss. Now, here he is, probably a millionaire, and he's constantly causing problems in his marriage because he's afraid of spending too much money. Everything she buys, he's criticizing her for it, right? And it's just irrational. Multi-millionaire, but fear of finances is driving his marriage into the dirt. And so I walk him through this process. I said, hey, look, you're going to have to do this. Do it every day. You came into this problem naturally, right? You've been believing this way your whole life. It's not going to be overnight that it suddenly changes, right? You've got to let that thing atrophy. And then you've got to build up another muscle. So I said, commit yourself to doing this for three to six months and see how it changes your life. So he did. Marriage gets transformed, quite literally. He and his wife started, at least that, that particular problem that was in their life, he was no longer the source of it. It was going away because he was actually meditating on the truth he needed and learning to take the thoughts captive that were sort of subconscious. So he comes to me and he says, hey, man, have you ever thought about putting this process into an actual book? And I thought, no, no, that's a dumb idea. I'm not doing that. And then my wife, who's the genius of the group, she says, you're an idiot. You need to go do this with them. And so that's actually how we created this thing right here called the Overcomer's Journal. Now, I sell these. I'm going to tell you honestly, you do not need this. All you need is a pad of paper and the process I've just given you. However, if you want a really trendy way to do it, it's $20. You can get three for $55. Um, I'm a terrible salesman. I always start off this pitch by saying, you don't actually need this. Um, and then You're supposed to do the opposite. You really need this. You'll never get free without this. That's not true. You get free without that product any day. So... Uh, is this encouraging? Do you guys feel equipped to actually do some work on yourselves? It's the work of sanctification. And he's given us everything we need to overcome it. That's good news. All right, men, I know you have to deal with your emotions, but there's really like good stuff on the other side of it, isn't it? All right.